This podcast is brought to you by Alex Partners. New and accelerating disruptions from new technologies to geopolitical conflict to a warming planet are buffeting business daily. Are you ready? Read more in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index online today at disruption.alexpartners.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Texas and the Border Patrol get into a legal scuffle on the Rio Grande as MAGA internet pundits concoct a conspiracy theory about how Taylor Swift could throw the 2024 election to Joe Biden. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with the Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnists Alicia Finley and Kim Strassel. Eagle Pass, Texas is on the border with Mexico southwest of San Antonio, and there are a couple of disputes there that it might be worth drilling in on. The first of those is an argument that's been percolating in the courts. Texas officials there have been putting up concertina wire or razor wire along about 27 miles of the border in and around Eagle Pass. And then they went to court complaining that federal officials continued cutting that razor wire. Let's listen to Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick on Fox News on Monday defending Texas's move here. We are putting up wire, Martha, everywhere we can. We will continue. We will not stop. If they cut it, we will replace it. Uh, I was down there uh, Friday with our troops to thank them, support them, and also to stand with them in the event the Biden administration did send Border Patrol there. Wisely, they did not. We're thankful they did not. We don't want a confrontation, but we want this border secure. And in this area of Shelby Park, Martha, uh, a few months ago, 3,000 people a day were crossing. Now it's virtually zero crossing in that area. So we've proven we can do that. The idea that the Biden administration would want to stop us from securing the border tells you all you need to know about their, their goals. The state of play on this as we tape is that Texas and the Border Patrol, according to a December court ruling, they agreed that this razor wire must be cut if there is an emergency, such as a migrant who is at risk of drowning in the river. But the Fifth Circuit Appeals Court cited other examples of the Border Patrol cutting the wire and allowing hundreds or thousands of migrants to pass through and issued an injunction to stop that kind of activity. Then recently, the Supreme Court vacated that injunction in a 5-4 vote without any sort of explanation. And so, Alicia, as Dan Patrick says, Texas intends to continue putting up the razor wire. And I've seen some commentators arguing that Texas is now defying the Supreme Court. But as I read this, the Supreme Court hasn't ordered Texas to do anything in particular. Well, right. The Supreme Court essentially stayed an injunction by Fifth Circuit. And actually, the issue in the court case or the thorny issue was over sovereign immunity and whether the U.S. had waived its sovereign immunity and allowed itself to be sued by Texas in federal court, which it must do. And so this was actually kind of the case in itself relates to a very obscure issue. And so, again, you mentioned that the five four decision without any actual opinion, presumably the merits will continue to be litigated. Um, but we can't really divide anything from that other than about who is actually right on the claim or that Texas is essentially making that the feds are trespassing on its property. Now, I view what Texas is doing as counterproductive in that maybe the wire has actually reduced crossings or attempted crossings and border encounters at this discrete part of the border. 
But then it just shifts the migration to other parts, right? And that's what you're actually seeing. And furthermore, it doesn't stop the actual flow of migrants because it doesn't change the incentives. Migrants are still going to come and claim asylum. They're just not going to, again, try to cross at this part. And ideally, immigration and actually protecting the border, would ideally you'd see a cooperative federalism between the U.S. government and states cooperating, right? And this is when border security probably actually works best is when you have the states and feds actually working together. But it's been unfortunate in this case where Texas is trying for political reasons. It's trying to make a political point, but in some ways is actually undermining, in my opinion, it's undermining the federal government's border enforcement. And I think you saw this under Trump. That's essentially what the sanctuary cities did, but in other respects in which that uh, sanctuary cities basically didn't cooperate with the feds who were trying to deport undocumented immigrants who were in jails. And so now you're seeing the opposite happen now with Texas. And this is where you really see kind of the constitutional fabric kind of fall apart. On the point about conflict, a bigger issue than the wire to my eye is this legal argument now percolating around Shelby Park in Eagle Pass. And that was a spot that the Border Patrol had used to process migrants. And then a few weeks ago, the Texas National Guard took control of the site under an order from Governor Greg Abbott. And interesting now, here is the letters that are going back and forth. In January 14, the Department of Homeland Security sent a letter saying that the Border Patrol was being denied access to about 2.5 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border and demanding that Texas cease and desist. Letters back from State Attorney General Ken Paxton are taking the argument that the Border Patrol doesn't have any right to be there necessarily. Some of this dispute is about who owns the property. The federal government is saying that it has some property interests that it acquired via condemnation, that it has a deal with Eagle Pass. Ken Paxton is disputing whether those are valid claims. But Kim, it seems to me that Texas is at risk of maneuvering itself into a position where it is in direct conflict with the federal government on this. And to my eye, the Constitution is pretty clear when that happens that the state claims are supposed to give way. We aren't there yet. And I think it's going to be really important to see what Greg Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton do next, because they could very much wander into that territory that you have mentioned. Now, there are a number of unresolved legal questions here. You mentioned one of them, which is about who owns the land. Attorney General Paxton has said that this easement that the federal government is citing, which was based on an agreement they made with the city Eagle Pass, he says it's null and void because any deal done between the city and feds would need the approval of the Texas state, which has not been granted. There's another aspect here where the feds cite a law granting warrantless access to land within 25 miles of the border, but Texas turns around and points to the next line in that law that says that access is, quote, for the purpose of patrolling the border to prevent the illegal entry of aliens, end quote. And they are arguing that the Biden policy is exactly the opposite, that they are indeed using their access along the border to invite more illegal immigrants in. And so that isn't a valid claim. I think one of the most 
interesting and and the one that is the most legally shaky is Governor Abbott is claiming that there's a clause in the Constitution that allows the state to essentially defend itself at times of invasion. But that is extremely shaky. First of all, just the basic question is migration really invasion. You know, that is one I think the courts could definitely take some issue with. And there are some other legal questions in history regarding that. Some dissents, Abbott cites a dissent that Scalia made, but Scalia had some exceptions to that. In overall, I think Abbott is putting himself in a situation where there is going to be a genuine legal conflict over this and potentially a crisis moment And so we're going to have to wait and see if the courts intervene. The next steps here are going to be legal. Look, what Abbott is doing at the moment, this is political, okay? The short-term aspect of this is to send a message and to put more pressure on the administration to act. The long-term questions are the legal ones, but we seem to be rapidly heading toward a clash on that. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more on this in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day, but what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Welcome back. Before the break, Kim mentioned that Governor Abbott had declared an invasion under the Constitution. This is from a letter that he published on January 24th. He invoked Texas's constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. That authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. And Alicia, Kim mentioned one problem with that argument, which is, is migration, granted, it is a problem and it is chaotic, it is even anarchic, but does that constitute an invasion? And I will just read the constitutional section at issue here. It says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with any foreign power or engage in war unless actually invaded. And so the point that Kim is making, I think, is a good one. This clause to me reads as if it is back in the days of the founders and it takes time for information and news to travel. And if one state is invaded by Britain or France or another country like that, it would take time for that news to make its way to Washington, D.C., for Washington to decide what to do, and for that news to make its way back to what would be the front in a new war against the United States. And so that clause deals with that problem. And I do question whether, especially at a time when we're having a Supreme Court case coming up very soon on whether the term insurrection in the Constitution is broad enough to encompass the riot that happened on January 6, 2021, whether conservatives really want to get into this business of stretching the term invasion to cover what is happening right now at the southern border. Another point that I would make is even if you think this qualifies as an invasion, so that unlocks then the power of the state of Texas to engage in war. And what does that even mean In this context, Alicia, to me, it does not mean what Governor Abbott seems to be claiming it means, which is that the authority of Texas now supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary is what he says. That is not what this clause, to my eye, is supposed to mean. 
Right. So as you give kind of a historical context at the time of the founding, and that's really important because when courts interpret the Constitution and originalism or textualism, they look at the meaning of uh, statutes or meaning provisions in the Constitution at the time of the founding. And if you look back at the time of the founding and invasion, first of all, there wasn't the concept of immigration like in immigration laws didn't exist. There weren't any immigration laws then that would have prevented migrants from coming. You didn't have floods of people illegally immigrating then. All basically migration was legal then. But really invasion was intended or referred to wars by foreign powers. And there was a real risk, especially as the U.S. expanded into the West and the Northwest territories. And there was more risk of conflict, but, you know, up in Canada with the French, the Spanish down further south in Louisiana, where you could actually have a potential invasion, right? And I'll just read the Oxford language dictionary definition of invasion was an instance of invading a country or region with an armed force. And that was actual risk at the founding. That is not actually a major risk right now to the U.S., though you could potentially see a war, hot war breaking out. But here it's really migrants are coming to the U.S. for mostly economic reasons. They're not invading. In many cases, they're going straight up to border security and saying, hey, I want to apply for asylum. They're not armed. So really, I think Texas is really kind of misconstruing the Constitution and, and actually in a way that I think the left often does. And so I think there's a little bit of irony in that. I think partisans of both sides are really trying to distort the constitutional meaning of words to advance their own ideological imperatives. Kim, you mentioned Justice Scalia, and let me take that up because Greg Abbott cites an opinion from Justice Scalia, a dissent in a 2012 case, Arizona v. United States. And in that case, Arizona had enacted a law that, for example, made it a state crime to be unlawfully present or to seek work without authorization And Arizona lost that case at the Supreme Court. The reason that Greg Abbott is citing that dissent is that Justice Scalia points to the invasion clause of the Constitution and says that this shows that even after the creation of the United States, states still have some inherent interest in their own sovereignty. However, I still think that is a misreading of what Scalia said in this dissent, because what Scalia said was he didn't think that the Arizona law at issue here conflicted at all with the United States law. The United States may or may not make it a crime to be unlawfully present or to seek work without authorization, but that does not mean that Arizona cannot also make it a crime to do those things. And again, this was a dissent, so that was not the view of the majority of the Supreme Court. But it is crystal clear, I think, from this Scalia opinion that he is not taking up any challenge to the idea that federal law is supreme over state law. Here is a piece of his ruling. He says, I accept as a given that state regulation is excluded by the Constitution when one, it has been prohibited by a valid federal law, or two, it conflicts with federal regulation when, for example, it admits those whom federal regulation would exclude or excludes those whom federal regulation would admit. And so I don't think that Justice Scalia, if he were around, would be on Texas's side 
in this case the way that Governor Abbott suggests. But Kim, to your point earlier, that what makes it so difficult is that the situation in Eagle Pass at the southern border more broadly is untenable. You can go look at the Border Patrol figures and for the border sector that includes Eagle Pass, in the three months ending last year, it was 152,000 encounters that the Border Patrol reported. And I don't think that those numbers are sustainable. On the other hand, I think Alicia is right that the problem is this asylum system where somebody can come into the United States and say, I have a credible fear. And then they get put into this asylum system that is broken and is taking years to process people and make a decision about whether they actually meet the criteria to stay. And so, Kim, that to me is why this is a frustrating moment, because there is a Senate proposal that is being negotiated to help deal with that problem in the asylum system. And it looks as if Republicans in the House are getting ready to torpedo it. It's an appalling situation. And let's be entirely clear, it is largely the fault of the Biden administration. And what I mean by that is that A big aspect of this mess at the moment are the sheer numbers of people that are flooding north. And why is that happening? Because candidate Joe Biden, he was in a debate. You can go look it up. He said, yes, you know, if you need to flee, flee, come here, come to us. Because he was trying so hard in that primary to clamber on what was essentially the progressive open border position. And we now have the word out in all these countries and countries around the world, by the way, we're getting people coming across the border from, you know, every continent on the globe. So this is a problem. But then it comes and runs smack into a statutory system that Congress has not bothered to update in a long time. I do think that some of this is the administration putting forth its own interpretation of laws much more loosely that is allowing a lot of people to come in that probably prior presidents would not have allowed. But the reality is at this point, and you just put your finger on it, is that the long history of the Supreme Court is that the federal government reigns supreme when it comes to the border. And we've never had a conflict like this where what is everybody supposed to do, states like Texas and Arizona, when there is a complete collapse, complete malfeasance and failure to enact that. We might not like it, but it doesn't change the law. And so that brings us back to your point about Congress. At this point, if Republicans really want to see changes at the border, the only way that that's going to happen is for Congress to absolutely instruct the president to change the way things work. The best shot they've got right now are the negotiations going on in the Senate. Democrats are on the run. They're on the back foot and they are willing now to give because they have such a huge political problem. It is remarkable to me that Republicans aren't taking that moment. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. In just 48 hours, TopTel can provide the world-class AI and tech experts you need to optimize your business and stay competitive in 2024 and beyond. To get started, visit TopTel.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Let's turn to one of the more bizarre stories of the week. This is the theory being propagated now by Donald Trump backers, internet pundits, 
that Taylor Swift is preparing to throw the 2024 election. Remember, Taylor Swift is dating Travis Kelsey, a football player for the Kansas City Chiefs, who won an upset this past Sunday to go to the Super Bowl. And Alicia, according to some versions of this theory, the Super Bowl is going to be rigged or Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are in a fake relationship. And this is all aimed at some sort of Joe Biden endorsement that will swing the 2024 election. And less people think that I'm making this up. Here is a podcast host, a right wing podcast host, quote, the NFL is totally rigged for the Kansas City Chiefs, Taylor Swift. Mr. Pfizer, Travis Kelsey, all to spread Democrat propaganda. And Mr. Pfizer, that refers to the fact that Travis Kelsey, I guess, was in a commercial at one point for a COVID shot. Let's listen to Nikki Haley on CNN yesterday addressing this theory. I don't know what the obsession is. Taylor Swift is allowed to have a boyfriend. Taylor Swift is a good artist. Um, I've taken my daughter to Taylor Swift concerts before. Um, You know, to have a conspiracy theory of all of this is bizarre. Nobody knows who she's going to endorse. But I can't believe that that's overtaken our national politics. I mean, right now you've got 60% of a of American families living paycheck to paycheck. We've got a border that's out of control. We've got wars happening around the world. The last thing I really think we need to be worried about is who Taylor Swift is dating and what conspiracy theory is going to have her endorsing a person for president. Alicia, what do you make of this? And am I wrong to start with the question, do we live in unserious times? Well, I agree with everything that Nikki Haley just said. I mean, I don't travel in the fever swamps. So the first I ever even read about this was when the journal published an editorial. It still boggles my mind how people could be speculating this. And I think your statement, do we live in unserious times, that that's probably an understatement. But I think... Some people, you know, as Taylor Swift would like to say, haters are going to hate, 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 hate. Um, and you just need to shake it off. I think that's probably the best advice for Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift right now. But it does make the faction of the right, which includes apparently Vivek Ramaswamy and some other Trump supporters, look absolutely deranged. I think that's a poor reflection on the Republican Party right now. All I can say is, God help us. Here is the statement from Vivek Ramaswamy. I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month. And I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially culturally propped up couple this fall. And Kim, a couple thoughts, I guess, that I would add here. One is that what happens in the fever swamp doesn't always stay in the fever swamp. And if I had to guess, I would say that a lot of these people, including Vivek Ramaswamy, do not actually think the Super Bowl is rigged, do not actually believe in this conspiracy theory. They're trying to be interesting. They're trying to be entertaining. They're trying to be outrageous on the Internet. And there's one video I watched by one of these pundits, 40 minutes long, has about a quarter of a million views, says the CIA is involved in that. And again, I don't think he believes that. But the problem is that when they uh, take this approach of just trying to be interesting at the risk of saying things that aren't true, you end up with a situation where it gets reported on and Nikki Haley gets asked about it on CNN. And there are swing voters watching CNN who start to think, you know, these MAGA Republicans are a bit of an odd group. They're a bit out there. I don't know that I want to be associated with them. And then, Kim, my other thought here is Taylor Swift endorsed President Biden in 2020. And if all it is going to take for President Biden to win again in 2024 is to get a repeat of that endorsement, 
What does that suggest about whether Donald Trump is really a, a formidable candidate in November? Well, the whole conversation is obviously absurd. But I would try to make one serious point about it, which is that absurdity rarely appears in a vacuum. There's usually something that gives it the legs that it needs to go or gain traction. And I think one of the sad things about this is it's a reflection, absurd as it is, it's a reflection, I think, of the great consternation a lot of conservatives had over the shenanigans that happened in the 2020 election and all the changes to the laws that Democrats rammed through in the lead up to it under the guise of COVID and therefore the lack of trust that people had in things. I think, you know, you can add to that people's lack of trust in institutions. If anybody had asked whatever six years ago or seven years ago, could you really believe that our FBI would proceed with an investigation claiming the president of the United States was a Russian plant. I mean, it sounds insane, right? But they actually did that. And so when you get scenarios like that, it leads people to think that anything kooky or crazy is possible. Again, this is absurd. The whole thing is absurd. But that is the sort of sadder context in which I think that you see this happening. And I agree. The absurdity is such that if you just step back and look at this clearly, if people really believe that all it's going to take is an endorsement from a pop singer to swing the election and guarantee that Trump can't win, maybe we need to be looking for a nominee that isn't quite that vulnerable, that he can be taken out by Taylor Swift. I think that there's a certain rational thought here that is eluding some people, obviously. And one last thought, it's a pity too that I, I also think that one of the reasons this is getting such magnification is because a lot of, like you said, CNN are running these clips of it. Some people are obviously a bit kooky and looking for attention, and sometimes it's wiser not to give it to them. Thank you, Kim and Alicia. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, and we'll be back next week with another edition of Potomac Watch.